Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Behrens, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder-Longmont area of northern Colorado. Our website is crimsonthread.com. This study was recorded during our normal Tuesday evening Bible study. Enjoy the study. So we're in Esther. Last week we finished chapter 3. And at the end of the day, the king had issued a decree at the behest of Haman that on the 12th month, on the 13th day, that the Jews could be killed, them, their families, and that all of their possessions would be plundered and sold or taken as booty. And the idea of announcing it a year in advance is for terror purposes. In other words, what they wanted to do is get the Jews basically afraid and passive. And they also you know, needed to get time for people who were going to actually come out of the woodwork and do this to get themselves prepared. I'm down in uh, 315 now. The couriers went out post-haste on the royal mission, and the decree was proclaimed in the fortress Shushan. The king and Haman sat down to feast, but the city of Shushan was dumbfounded. Now, one of the things to understand is there are more than just Jews in Shushan. Up until now, up until the appointment of Haman, the king has always made all of his decisions in a cloud of courtiers. So there's lots of people around, he gets lots of advice, people talk to him and stuff like that, and so when a decision finally gets made, everybody in the court may not be on board with it, but they've all sort of heard the process by which it was made. With Haman here, Haman comes into the king in secret, offers him a large bribe, gets the decree signed, and the first time anybody hears anything about this is when the decree goes out. So it, it's this total surprise to everybody, as opposed to the way that previous decisions had been made. And of course, when the decree is just sort of out of the blue, we are going to annihilate an entire people group. Persia is an empire that runs from India all the way to Ethiopia. There are lots of diverse people groups in Persia. So, if just out of the blue, out of the court comes this decree that a year from now all the Jews are gone, we're going to kill them all, the question then comes up in everybody else's mind, hmm, what are we going to do with gypsies, or what are we going to do with Cossacks? When it says that Shushan was in an uproar, Certainly the Jews would have been in an uproar, and there were Jews in Shushan, but also everybody else in Shushan is in an uproar because, whoa, where did this come from? If I'm not an ethnic Persian, might this happen to me and my people at some time in the future, also without any warning? So that's sort of the, the background. So now we're down all the way down to chapter 4, and I'm reading out of the Tanakh, I've got the English standard up here, too, in case we get a dispute. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. He went throughout the city, crying out loudly and bitterly, until he came in front of the palace gate. For one could not enter the palace gate wearing sackcloth. Also, in every province that the king commanded and decree reached, 
There was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, wailing, and everybody lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maiden and eunuchs came and informed her, the queen was greatly agitated. She sent clothing for Mordecai to wear that he might take off his sackcloth, but he refused. I'm going to camp out here a little bit. There have been edicts of destruction against Jewish people, Hebrew people, at several times in the past. This is the first time in scripture that a protest has been made. So start back in Egypt when Pharaoh was chucking babies into the river. There's no record of anybody making any protest. Now there's a record of the midwives resisting the decree, but it's passive resistance. In other words, when uh, Pharaoh hauls these midwives up and says, why aren't you killing the boy babies? Oh, well, these Hebrew women are just so lively and, and strong and so forth that by the time we get there, the baby's already born. Can't do anything. So it's passive resistance. Now, the character of the Hebrew people and what makes them Hebrew is their resistance to civil authority. And it starts clear back with Abraham. So Abraham leaves Babylon, and extra-biblical sources say the reason for that is because he was fleeing idolatry of Nimrod. But the first thing that happens of significant once he gets to the promised land is he resists Pharaoh. You know, the business with, she's not my wife. The same thing happens to Isaac. You know, Jacob winds up resisting Laban, you know, the business with the sheep and all that kind of stuff. So the idea of Hebrews resisting secular authority goes all the way back to Abraham, and it continues forward. You have two sort of reactions to secular authority. One, or three really. One is you can resist it. Two is you can cooperate with it. And three is you can try and lay low and hope nobody notices. And up until now, Mordecai and Esther have been playing, we're going to help the secular authorities. In other words, everything they've set up is to get themselves into positions of power and influence. So Mordecai sits in the gate. Esther does what she can and, and manages to wind up being the queen. In other words, she's put in a position where she's essentially going to be involved in a state-sponsored rape. Nothing she can do about it. So what she does is she figures out how she can profit by it and move up by becoming the queen. Well, now things have changed. And so what Mordecai and Esther are going to do is switch from helping to resisting. So that's the plan here. And as I say, Joseph doesn't have it in him. Remember when Joseph is the viceroy, he doesn't have it in him to resist. He lets his father be embalmed. His father doesn't trust him to get him buried, so his father makes him swear an oath. By the time it comes time to bury his father, he can't even ask Pharaoh to go. What he has to do is he has to send a courtier. You know, he, you know, he makes, makes a buzz in the court and says, would you guys talk to Pharaoh and see if he'll let me take my dad off and bury him? Joseph doesn't have the will to resist. By the time we get to Moses, Moses is a Levite. And when you need to bust out of slavery, you need a Levite. You don't need a Joseph because they're the ones that got the sand to do it. And Moses also engages in resistance. Remember, he kills an Egyptian over abuse of a Hebrew slave and then comes back 40 years later 
And he's the guy that's going to walk in and confront Pharaoh. So in his switch now, Mordecai is becoming a Moses, whereas before he had been a Joseph. When things were going well, and the king was listening to all sorts of people as he made his decisions, you know, I mean, he was corrupt, but everybody was corrupt. Mordecai was right in there with elbows of everybody else, trying to affect decisions and so forth. And so in that situation, it made perfect sense to be a Joseph. But now that things have gone south, Joseph isn't the guy you want anymore. Now you need a Levite. And so what he's done is he's switched roles, and he's going to active resistance. Now, as I said, this is the first instance where anybody has raised a protest over what a pagan king has done with captive Jews. Because you remember Daniel and Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah. When the king says, you'll all bow down and worship my statue, they don't protest. They just don't do it. And then when they don't do it, they get hauled up in front of the king, and then they stand up and say, basically, hey, our God will deliver us, but if he doesn't, up yours, O king. We aren't going to bow down to your idol. But they don't make a public protest. Neither does Daniel. Remember when uh, under the Persians, the, the similar decree, and Daniel simply goes to his house, doesn't make a public show of it, but prays as he does every other day. And again, he's caught and reported, and that's what gets him thrown in the lion's den. But there's no public protest involved. This is the first time that happens. So what's he trying to do? What's the purpose of the exercise? He's had influence in the court. He sat in the gates. And so now here he comes, disheveled, sackcloth, ashes, wailing and mourning. And the reason for that is the way the king is now making decisions. Just him and Haman. And so there are other people who used to have influence in the court. And so what he's doing here is he is basically sending messages to all the other people that used to have influence in the court saying, hey, maybe you can be my ally. Maybe you can help me. Maybe there's some way we can get something done here. But what he's doing is he's literally making an appeal to the other people and the other power brokers within the court. And so what he's doing is he is putting pressure on the king. Now, Esther's reaction. We can infer here that at this point, Esther is still in Joseph mode. In Joseph mode, what you're trying to do is you're trying to accumulate power and influence, and you're trying not to rock the boat. Now, one of the problems that Joseph had is Joseph believed, rightly, that he had been sent there by God to deliver the Israeli people which means that if he lost or risked his power, he would no longer be able to do anything. So what his attitude was, if I rock the boat and I lose my position with Pharaoh, then I can't help my people anymore. But what that winds up meaning is, I'm afraid to use the power that I have for fear that I'll lose it. Remember, the famine was over in five years. His father lives 17 more years. During that time, Joseph never does anything to rock the boat. In other words, the danger of starvation is over. 
and yet he still will not risk his power by doing anything that he thinks might offend Pharaoh. Hence, I need to go bury my dad. Hey, Pharaoh, can I go bury my dad? He doesn't do that. He sends people around the side to talk to Pharaoh and see if he can get a decision. And what I'm saying is this is indicative of someone who has recognized that the power he was given was for the purpose of preserving his people. But at the end of the day, it becomes something that he must preserve because if he doesn't, he has no reason to live anymore. After 17 years, he is so habituated and acculturated to doing what the Pharaoh wants that he can't break out of it. And that's the dilemma of the court Jew throughout history since at least the exile. Every empire has had its court Jew. Now, court Jews are very useful. Everybody know what a court Jew is? A court Jew is a Jew that has risen to power within the state, whether it's an empire, a kingdom, or whatever, and becomes a trusted advisor and usually a financier to the, to the king and, to, and to, the, to the state. And he has a tremendous amount of influence and power. And the reason court Jews were so valuable is because of the network of connections they had with other Jews. So Jews could move money and get loans and stuff like that in a big hurry, much faster than anybody else could. Someone who had those kinds of connections and was willing to use them in the service of the king or the prince or the emperor was extremely valuable. And what they did then is they would use that power to advance and help other Jews. It happened all throughout the world. The problem becomes when a situation arises where the state is doing something harmful to the Jews, the court Jew very often looks at, oh, if I rock the boat, I'm going to lose my power, which means I'm not going to be able to help anybody anymore. So when Hitler, for example, rose to power and put out the final solution, there was no Jewish protest. None. There was no Mordecai. So what this is then is a treatise on how a court Jew should behave. And there comes a point where you have got to risk all of this power you have gained for the sake of your people. Mordecai understands that. Esther does not understand that yet. This business of the court Jew and, and that attitude, where do we see that today? The Republican Party. They have attained power, they have got these positions in Congress, and they are afraid to rock the boat because they think they will lose their power, get diselected, and then they won't be able to do any more good, quote unquote. You understand how it's the same attitude? So what Esther is, is seeing is, oh my God, cousin has flipped. Somebody quick put a sheet over that guy before he embarrasses us all. I mean, that's her reaction. She sends him clothes down, says, for God's sake, cousin, get cleaned up and you can't come into the court looking like that. You embarrass us all. Okay, that's her reaction. I'm now down to uh, verse 5. Thereupon Esther summoned Hatak, one of the eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to serve her, and sent him to Mordecai to learn the why and wherefore of it all. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the palace gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and all about the money that Haman had offered to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him the written text of the law that had been proclaimed in Sushan for their destruction. Mordecai is clearly prepared for the question. 
In other words, this is not a random protest where somebody is freaked and running through the streets with his hair on fire. He's got the decree, a copy of it. He also has got the information about the bribe that Haman paid, which he has clearly gotten from other sources in the court. In other words, he wouldn't have been personally privy to that discussion. You know, the discussion was between Haman and, and the king, but somebody overheard it. And Mordecai's connections are such that he was able to get that information. So he now can feed it back to Esther. And he's got a copy of the decree in his hand. So as I say, this is not some random unorganized protest. This is very carefully calculated, very carefully planned. Verse 8, he also gave him the written text of the law that had been proclaimed in Shushan for their destruction. He bade him show it to Esther and inform her and charge her to go to the king and to appeal to him and to plead with him for her people. So what he's now sending back is a message. This is what's happening, babe. In other words, I'm not your crazy cousin who is embarrassing everybody in the street. Well, I am embarrassing everybody in the street, but I'm not going to stop. And this is what you need to do. Verse 9. When Hester came and delivered Mordecai's message to Esther, Esther told Hattak to take back to Mordecai the following reply. All the king's courtiers and the people of the king's provinces know that if any person, man or woman, enters the king's presence in the inner court without having been summoned, there is but one law for him, that he be put to death. Only if the king extends the golden scepter to him may he live. Now I have not been summoned to visit the king these last 30 days. So Esther's response is no. That, that's what that all boils down to. Lots of flowery language, but no, I'm not going to do it. And she's got, you know, decent reasons. The king has basically sealed himself off. Remember, part of the reason for appointing Haman is to insulate himself from the play of politics in the court. So he's made a gate. And everything has to go through Haman, whom I trust. And anybody that tries to come to me except through Haman, it's a death penalty. This decree that if you come into the king's presence, except by invitation as a death penalty, is a function of the appointment of Haman. This is a new thing, in other words. It, it was not the case before the appointment of Haman. And Esther says, I haven't seen the guy in a month. And, oh, by the way, I'm still in Joseph's mode, and I am not going to walk into the king's presence where even if he does recognize me, he's going to be ticked. And so I'm risking all the power and influence that I have spent all this time gathering. So I'm still in Joseph mode. Sorry, but no. By the way, this whole story is going to turn on Ahasuerus' paranoia. We'll get, we'll get there later. Probably not today, but later. So anyway, Esther says no. Verse 12. When Mordecai was told what Esther had said, Mordecai had this message delivered to Esther. Do not imagine that you, of all the Jews, will escape with your life by being in the king's palace. On the contrary, if you keep silent in this crisis, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another quarter, while you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have, you have attained a royal position for just such a crisis. All right, now there's several messages there. First off, if you say no, God is going to deliver us somehow. That is the antidote to the court Jew, the one who is afraid to use his influence and power at a time of crisis for fear of losing it. 
And so if you lose your power, you then can't do anything else. And what Mordecai is saying here is, you don't matter that much, babe. The Jews are going to be saved. The only question is whether you're going to step up and be the heroine or whether you're going to cease to be a Jew. Thing one is the Jews are going to be delivered. We're God's people. It's going to happen. The only question is whether or not you're going to be involved in this. The other thing is you will lose your soul. What does that mean? He says, while you and your father's house will perish. So what does that mean? She will have lost what it means to be a Jew. Remember he says that we are physically going to be delivered. That's going to happen. So it's not the case that she is in physical danger. It is the case that she is in danger of becoming something other than what she is. That's what it means, you and your father's house. I mean, you're the last one in your father's house, babe. You're an orphan. You're the last one in your father's house. And if you don't do what would be expected of you by God in this situation, your father's house will perish. Onward. Okay, yeah, the comment was that uh, one of the other things Mordecai says is the, the reason you had this power may have been just for this situation, which is true. Verse 15. Then Esther sent back this answer to Mordecai. Go assemble all the Jews who live in Shushan and fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will observe the same fast. Then I shall go to the king, though it is contrary to the law, and if I am to perish, I shall perish. So Mordecai went about the city and did just as Esther had commanded him. Our problem here is the king has set things up so that all political decisions and all state decisions go through Haman. Haman has made a decision, and the king has ratified it, and this is a state decision. The queen, Esther, although hubby loves her dearly, although he hasn't seen her in a month, although hubby loves her dearly, she has no demonstrated expertise in policy or statecraft. So for her to go to hubby and say, you can't kill all the Jews, she's going head to head against Haman in his area of expertise in an area where the king trusts him. You understand, again, the problem. To use a, an example, you know, Eric is a metallurgist. Catherine is his lovely wife, who is a very bright lady, but she's not a metallurgist. So if she were to walk into the shop and say, you know, you've got to do this metal differently, dear, he would probably say words to the effect, I love you very much, but go tend to the household. This is my part of the job. So for her to have any chance of success going against Haman in his area of expertise in reversing a policy decision, she has got to discredit Haman in some other way. That has got to be the strategy, because, as I say, just falling down in front of the king and weeping and saying, you're going to kill all my people, that's not going to do the trick. She has somehow got to discredit Haman. She starts off with this three-day fast, and everybody is fasting with her, and in that process, she has no food nor water, and you all have been through Yom Kippur, and you know how dry and scraggly you get by the end of 24 hours without food and water. This is three times that. 
So then she comes before the king and she looks like she's been dragged through a knothole. She's disheveled. She's dehydrated. She's parched. And oh, by the way, she's violating the law. Now, if that doesn't get the king's attention, nothing will. Again, you understand what's going on there? The three-day fast, I'm sure she's praying and doing a bunch of other stuff. But part of that is she is also getting herself in a, you know, this is not the cute little ball of fluff that we play in the bedroom with whenever we want to. This is suddenly someone who is serious, who is in great distress, and is willing to take a tremendous amount of risk for something. Chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, facing the king's palace. While the king was sitting in his royal throne, in the throne room facing the entrance to the palace. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won his favor. The king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which he had in his hand, and Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. What troubles you, Queen Esther, the king asked. So, with his lightning fast mind, he has figured out that she's upset about something. And as I say, the fact that she's dehydrated probably doesn't look too good after three days fasting. And the fact that she is willing to walk into his presence when if he decides against it, it's a death penalty, all indicates something serious is going on. Don't know what, but we know it's serious. And quite frankly, I don't think that there's any reasonable possibility that the king would not extend his scepter to her. I mean, it's certainly always in the back of her mind, but I think practically speaking, there is no possibility that's going to happen. What happened the last time he got crossways of a queen? He lost the queen and it threw the whole place into turmoil for a long time. Realistically speaking, he really doesn't want to go through that again. In other words, he made a snap, hasty decision with regard to Vashti. And look at all the stuff that had happened because of that. So he's not going to make a hasty decision again. At the very least, he's going to hear what she has to say. So as I say, as a practical matter, there's virtually no possibility that he won't extend the scepter to her. So verse 3 now. What troubles you, Queen Esther, the king asked her, and what is your request? Even to the half of the kingdom, it shall be granted you. Obviously, this even to the half of the kingdom is a formulaic, hyperbolic thing. There's no realistic offer of half the kingdom. One of the things about this guy that we found early in the book, though, is he likes to make cheap gestures that make him look grand. So at this point, it costs him nothing to be magnanimous to the queen. And, you know, what do you want? Up to half of my kingdom. Anything you want, babe, just tell me. Verse 4. If it please your majesty, Esther replied, let your majesty and Haman come today to the feast that I have prepared for him. The king commanded, tell Haman to hurry and do Esther's bidding. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. All right, so now the trap is set. What is the trap? Here you have a queen who has risked her life, quote unquote, to come into the king's presence. She has not been with him in a month. So the natural thing would be, hey, king, I haven't seen you in a month. How about a little wine and candlelight tonight? So what's this guy Haman doing there? You understand what's going on? What the normal thing would be is, as I say, you know, I've got this, you know, sexy little thing that I just picked up from the shops. It's been a month. How about coming to my chambers tonight and we'll have a little wine, a little candlelight, you know, that kind of thing. 
That would be what you would expect after having not seen him for a month. Instead, what she says is, why don't you and Haman come for the meal I've prepared for him? Who's him? See, she's speaking in the third person. Let the king and Haman come and enjoy the feast I have prepared for him. So him is ambiguous here. Let the king come and eat the feast I prepared for him, or let Haman come and eat the feast I prepared for him. It, it becomes them the next time we do it, but it's ambiguous grammatically. So what's being set up here? Why'd you invite this guy, since you haven't seen me in a month, and just who is it you want to see? So the king, not being lightning fast in this case, doesn't pick up on it. Verse 6, at the wine feast, the king asked Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half the kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. My wish replied, Esther, my request, if your majesty will do me the favor, if it please your majesty to grant my wish and accede to my request, let your majesty and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do your majesty's bidding. The pronoun has changed. Before it was he, and it was ambiguous. Now it's explicitly not ambiguous. In other words, it's not you I'm preparing the feast for and Haman gets to tag along. It was ambiguous. Now I'm explicitly doing the feast for both of you. And the idea here is he didn't pick up on it. So we'll do it again. We change the pronoun. And we also run the risk of really annoying the king. In other words, there's a possibility here that the king will feel like he's being toyed with. But what she's doing is she is poking him in the forehead. Listen, turkey, your marriage is in danger here. And oh, by the way, the person that it's in danger from is your most trusted advisor. So what this is, is an attack on Haman in an area that is not Haman's area of expertise, which is statecraft. Verse 9. That day Haman went out happy. He didn't catch on either. That day Haman went out happy and lighthearted. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the palace gate, and Mordecai did not rise or even stir on his account, Haman was filled with rage at him. Nevertheless, Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh, and Haman told them about his great wealth and his many sons, and all about how the king had promoted him and advanced him above the officials of the king's courtiers, what is more, said Haman, Queen Esther gave a feast, and besides the king, she did not have anyone but me. And tomorrow, too, I am invited by her along with the king. Yet all this means nothing to me every time I see the Jew Mordecai sitting at the palace gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a stake be put up, fifty cubits high, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then you can go gaily to the king's feast, the proposal pleased Haman, and he had the stake put up. Haman has got absolutely no clue of the danger he's in at this point. And again, remember, it is not general knowledge that Esther is a Jew. That has not been announced yet. Remember, Mordecai only announces he's a Jew in response to the, to the elevation of Haman. Neither of these people are, have generally been known as Jews. So Haman doesn't recognize who he's dealing with. And he doesn't have any idea that he's being set up. And the other part of that is that he's got a head that can barely fit through the door sideways. So when somebody does him any kind of honor or gives him any kind of slight, it just goes straight to his head and, and really either annoys the heck out of him or just puffs him up with pride. Of course, we all know how the story comes out, but he's being set up at this point, teed up, if you will, 
and the golf club is about to come swinging down on him, and he has no idea what's going on. Oh, one other thing before I close, I want to get on tape. One of the things that's, that's probably going on is Haman is an Agagite. And you all remember that when Saul was told to wipe out all of the Amalekites, who was the king? Agag. So it's entirely possible that Haman is a descendant of Agag, and it's entirely possible that Haman knows the family story and knows about the relationship of the Hebrews to the Amalekites. So that may be part of what's driving Haman's train here. Would somebody like closing prayer?